0: Welcome to the Life Church Auburn Hills Sermon Podcast. We're a multicultural community being transformed and empowered by the grace, truth, and love of Jesus. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this week's message. Good morning. Uh, my name is Brendan. If you, I uh, haven't met you before, I'm the associate pastor here at Life Church Auburn Hills. And again, welcome. Really glad to be with you here today. You picked a good Sunday to come. We're continuing our series Beyond Happy. So we kicked that off last week and we're continuing that this week, Beyond Happy. See, what we, what we talked about last week is that happiness, while something that we all like, it's good to be happy. I like being happy. You like being happy? Yeah, happy is good, right? But happiness is circumstantial. As Pastor Don Earl talked about last week, um, he said that happiness is based on what's happening, right? So when life isn't happening for you, then, happy, then there's, what else can you draw on besides happiness? So we're talking about going beyond happy. And the thing that, that the Bible talks about, the thing that God has given to us that we can draw on in any circumstance beyond happiness is joy. And so this month, we are going together through the book of Philippians in the Bible, a letter that was written to a church um, 2,000 years ago that talks all about how do you live with joy in any circumstance. So that's our theme for this month, um, the Sundays of this month. And I'm going to start today with a little story about someone who's near and dear to me, my son Isaac, up on the screen here. Look at that cute little guy. So Isaac, he turns one year old today, which is pretty cool. Yeah. He's a, he's a really special kid. I love him a lot. Isaac did something a couple months ago that really caught my attention. It does a lot of interesting things, but a couple months ago, he and I were at the Auburn Hills Public Library together, and Isaac was just kind of hanging out. He had, you know, maybe like a little car in his hand. He was kind of like drooling on it and stuff, doing his baby thing. And then I saw Isaac notice that one of the other kids there had something in her hand that lo- must have looked really enticing. So I saw him kind of like turn his head and notice that there's this, this little girl who had this, uh, this perfectly square, beautiful blue block in her hand. And in Isaac's his little reptilian brain, like something lit up in there and said, I need that block And so I watched him crawl over to where this little girl was sitting and reach out his little hand and just take that block right out of her hand. And as a parent in that moment, I'm feeling all of these weird conflicting impulses because on the one hand, I'm like taking is bad. I should tell him that. But on the other hand, this was the first time I'd seen him kind of like exert his will, you know, like it was kind of fun to see him want something and go get it. And here's what really struck me about that moment, though, is because I realized, thinking about, thinking about it later, that, okay, he's like nine or ten months at this point. And every single need, every single desire that Isaac has had in his life has been totally taken care of up to this point. He's, he's had to do nothing, but every single me, need of his has been met. And still, at ten months, he's learning this orientation to, this, to the world. He's learning this attitude where he feels like it's, it's okay to put his needs in front of another person's, right? He's learning this kind of selfish orientation to the world that's like, if I desire something, it's okay for me to go and get it at the expense of somebody else. And I don't think that it was like a particularly wrong or malicious or evil choice that he made to like go grab that block, right? I don't think he was intentionally trying to cause harm. But it just stuck me that early on, we learn as human beings, our default orientation to the world is, let me prioritize my own needs over the needs of other people. And we have to learn over the course of our life to share and to actually recognize, oh, other people have needs too, and how I interact affects other people, but that's not what's most natural to us. To some degree, I think that orientation gets reinforced as we get older too. And I actually think that prioritizing our own needs, it kind of makes sense in a world that we start to perceive as we get older as kind of foundationally unfair. Like as we get older, we start looking around and we start noticing that other people have blocks. And it seems like other people have more blocks than I have. And other people, we don't know, how did they get those blocks? How come I don't have those blocks? And we start noticing this as we we grow older. That never really goes away. And as we we grow older and see, hey, the world, it's not a totally equal, it's not a totally fair place. So it kind of makes sense. Who's the best person to look out for my needs? Well, it's me, right? So it's kind of this learned orientation that actually fits into the way our world normally works. But the problem is that looking around, noticing what other people have, noticing, always looking out and seeing these blocks all over the place, what we fail to recognize is what's in our own hand. Isaac, he had a perfectly good toy. In fact, he probably had a whole pile of toys like scattered around him that he could have taken, but that's not what he was paying attention to. He had eyes for what somebody else had. And I actually think that that's the attitude that a lot of us can live our lives with. This is the attitude that the Apostle Paul, who's the writer of the book of Philippians, he's noticing, he's noticing this kind of brewing in this church that he's writing this letter to, the book of Philippians. So Donnero, last week, he gave a little bit of context for this group of people who are receiving this letter that we call the book of Philippians. So here's kind of some key details about what's going on when the scripture that we're talking about today was written. So Paul, he's writing this from prison. So he's been, now he's had, you know, multiple years where he's been going around talking about Jesus and he's made enough people mad that they're like, we got to get this guy in jail. We got to lock this guy up and stop him from causing this disruption. But the problem is Paul actually was so successful that there's now all these little churches that popped up all over the place. They're doing the same thing. They're telling people about Jesus And they're actually living together in a way that was unheard of in that time. You had people, you had, you had Roman citizens, Roman soldiers sharing the table, worshiping Jesus alongside, alongside Jews and alongside the people that they'd captured from other lands and brought back to these cities. And so you had a disruption in that kind of like the social order. And so this is the context for the letter that Paul writes back to this church that he planted. Because what he's experiencing, he knows that's coming for the church. That persecution, the opposition, his own imprisonment. He's noticing, hey, this is coming for you too. Because people, they don't like the way you live together. So watch out. But the thing that's so interesting is that even though Paul sees these, like, he sees this coming... What he actually is most preoccupied, this kind of like the storm clouds that he, that he sees are most ominous for this church, is this attitude of self-centeredness that is beginning to grow up in the church. And he talks about, in the beginning of the letter, people who've begun preaching the name of Jesus, teaching about Jesus, but for selfish motivation. He said they're not actually concerned about advancing the gospel, they're concerned about their own status. And there's leaders who are disagreeing and people are, are grumbling. And so he's noticing that default orientation to the world. I'm going to prioritize my needs over the needs of others. This is starting to kind of bubble up in the church. And he's like, no, 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 no. We can't survive if we live like this. So this is the real threat that Paul sees growing up in the church. And that's the context for the words that Paul writes um, to the Philippians. The Philippians is all about joy. How do we live with joy? How do we go beyond happy? Even when things feel unfair, even when things feel uncertain or challenging. And this is a big problem with a selfish orientation to the world. Because remember, it's it's natural to us, but it robs us of joy. A selfish orientation to the world that can be natural to us, but it robs us of joy. We talked last week about a definition. What is joy? Joy is simply this, a connection to and confidence in God, an emotion sustained by connection to and confidence in God. So here's what happens when we live out of an orientation to the world that says, let me prioritize my own needs. We'll call that a me first attitude. Well, one, that disrupts that connection that we have with God, that disrupts our connection because it pulls us away from the kind of relationship that we were created to have with Jesus. Like you are not created to be the person who takes care of your own needs. That's not how you're designed. You might think that, and the world might teach us that, but actually over and over again, scripture speaks so clearly that God is the one who supplies all of our needs. That true freedom is found when we surrender to God and we embrace him as a loving and gracious father. So you weren't created for a me first orientation. You are not good at knowing what you need. You're not good at satisfying your own needs. And so, so a me first attitude, it disrupts that connection and it misplaces our confidence Same kind of thing. We're designed to have confidence in God, our provider, the one who cares for us, who fights our battles and goes before us. And what what grows up in us is this me first attitude where we start to think, hey, I think I can take care of this on my own. I I see that block over there. And you know what? I think I can go get it. Like it's in reach. I'm actually just going to go and take it. But ultimately, what we find is we reach for things that don't satisfy us, right? We're not created. Uh, we're created for confidence in God and not confidence in ourselves. So that's why a, a me-first attitude, it's a big problem because it gets in the way of living out of joy. And I actually, I asked to, to preach on this chapter because this kind of orientation to this world, a me-first perspective, that's something that I have wrestled with like for years and years. And sometimes I literally lie awake at night and I think about all of the things that I don't have. And I think about people in my life who I just compare myself to. And I say, man, I wish oh, I wish I could preach like that. I wish I could, I wish I had that. I wish I had that house. You know, this, for me, the, the form it takes in my life is comparison constantly. And so I needed to actually dig into this scripture because honestly, it's an exhausting way to live. It sucks you dry. So I was like, I need to preach on this passage because I need freedom from this me first attitude and orientation. And here's what I found in the words of Paul to the Philippian church, that we find joy when we can go through an attitude shift from me first to you first. Attitude shift from me first to you first. Paul writes these words to the church. Here's where he's going with um, how he's trying to, here's how he's sharing with the church his own experience. He says, Even if I am poured out like a drink offering upon the altar of service for your faith, like if I am totally expended, if I am brought to nothing, if I lose my life building up your faith, he says, I rejoice. I can rejoice in that because I have learned that it is not about me. I have learned to put you first. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is just say, how do we get there? Like, how do we get that kind of attitude where we can rejoice when we give our lives to building up others to their success? See, when life is unfair or feels unfair, what we can't control oftentimes are our circumstances, But what we can do is use what God has put right in our hands. God, we can use what God has given to us and entrusted to us to serve others. And this is what I think Paul discovered. And this is what I want to discover with you today as we dive into the scripture. He gives this picture to the church. He says, this is a picture of what this looks like. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. So a couple things from these two verses. One, he says, check your motivation. What's driving you? What's motivating you? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So check your motivation. Look in the mirror. How do you spend your day? You know, do you, do you spend your day thinking about, hey, if I did this, That's going to get me noticed. That's going to get the kind of attention that feels really good. Or do you spend your time kind of comparing yourself and looking around and saying, you know, if I do this, if I succeed in this way, well, then I can come out on top. And that feels really good to be able to put myself above others. He's saying, no, 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 check your motivation. And I think in a church context, you know, we really value things like serving other people. And so sometimes we even need to check our motivation when we're doing things that others might look at and say, well, that's a really nice thing you just did. Like for me, truthfully, I love to be known as somebody who's compassionate, who serves other people. But I've had to look at myself and and realize at moments I was doing it selectively because I just love that reputation. And I just fed off that reputation. And if I could do it in a way that was really public, you know, so much the better because then people would notice it about me. So check your motivation. What's driving you? Instead, be motivated by humility, he says. And here's what this looks like in a really practical way. Valuing others above yourselves. And instead of watching out for your own good, which is kind of like the normal pattern of how our world operates, he says, watch out for what is better for others. So he talked about motivation first, and now he's talking about preoccupation. Who do I spend my time thinking about? When I, when I sit down to pray or when I'm praying in the middle of my day, do I pray for other people? Who comes to mind? Do I pray for myself and my circumstances or do I remember, is it natural for me to recall what's going on in other people's lives? Like that's the picture Paul is giving a group of people who when they sit down to pray, the first thing that comes to their mind is my sister who's going through this or my brother who's going through this. That's the picture that Paul's talking about. And I'm really interested in that word value that Paul uses because there's one way to read this. And maybe you feel this a little bit. You read that and you say, value others above myself. Well, is he talking about having kind of like a low self-esteem or like a low view of myself? And if you have ever struggled with feeling a sense of lack of self-worth or if you've ever struggled with feeling insecure about yourself, like that is a, that's a trap and that's a pit. And that's not what Paul is advocating for here. He's talking about properly valuing yourself and others. A huge part of that is actually recognizing God has given me certain gifts that that nobody else has. And And the way that I realize oftentimes what I've been given is I start to notice other people's gifts. Because when I do, I realize, man, what you bring to this, to this church, what you bring to my life, that's indispensable. I need that. And that actually clarifies, what am I gifted at? That's what Paul is talking about. It's a different way of ascribing value. It's a beautiful way of ascribing value because it's not at all based on what are you capable of producing? How competent are you? How successful are you? It's based on what is the gift that God has given you and realizing you are indispensable to my flourishing. That's what Paul is talking about. That's the picture he's putting up in front of the Philippians. For me, the most natural question is, what if there was a group of people who lived like this? Does that that seem like a compelling way to live? Like, does that feel like intriguing? Like, you know, if there were people who watched out who had my back so that I could focus on serving other people, well, that just seems like the best way to live, right? Right? Well, here's the good news. I see signs of this like all over this church. I would love to just like literally go row by row and just tell all of you how I see this in each of you, but we can't do that. So let me share, let me share three things. Um, the first thing that just came to my mind right away is I think of all of our families in our church who have um, taken in a foster child. And I think about the disruption in their life that that caused and hearing about that from them. And I look at that experience and I'm like, That is such a beautiful, perfect picture of what it looks like to value somebody else above yourself. I think of someone like Leona So. Leona, you popped right into my mind because you can't spend a minute around Leona without feeling encouraged. Like Leona, I feel like is someone who lives her life looking for ways to build other people up. And that's the kind of attitude that I think Paul's talking about. It's not me first, it's you first. How can I encourage you today? I think about someone like Makisha Jones, our director of Next Gen um, here at um, Life Church, and Makisha, you know, she works a demanding job all week, and then every single week she makes sure that your kids are cared for, are kept safe. Like she exhausts herself recruiting volunteers, putting in protocols to make sure that that safety happens, and then picking curriculum and training leaders to actually teach our kids how to follow Jesus. Like that to me, I look at Makisha and I'm like, I see you putting other people first constantly. So here's, I'm excited because I see this all over our church. So maybe a a good question is, it's like, how do we get more of that? Or maybe you're sitting here, you don't know these people, but you're like, They sound like great people. How do they do that? What motivates them? Well, here's what Paul tells the Philippians. He says that in order to go from me first to you first, we have to be filled with the attitude that Jesus had. That's where Paul goes with this. He says we need to be filled with the attitude of Christ Jesus. He breaks into, in this part of the letter, he's been kind of giving like instructions and talking about his circumstances. And then all of a sudden, it just... As if he just is writing and feels the need to like break out in worship, he writes this song right in the middle of the letter. That's what, that's what this is that I'm about to read. It's a hymn. It's a song that Paul just, he, it's almost like he just starts worshiping right in the middle of writing this letter. Because here's what Paul has realized. As he's looked to Jesus, he's talking about humility and putting others first. He's realizing that humility is actually part of the character of God. Like the God in Paul's mind, he's, he's, he, he believes that God is the one who created everything. Like God is behind the entire universe, speaking it into being, sustaining every breath, bringing up the sun for us, as Young was talking about. And he's thinking about that God and thinking about that God being powerful and, and knowing everything. And then at the same time, a way to talk about that God is that God is humble. Like, that's kind of mind-blowing, right? And so Paul, it's as if what he, can't, he can't really put that into, like, a sentence. So what he needs to do is to start singing. He needs to start worshiping right now. And he says this. He says that Jesus, he's talking about Jesus here, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You have to work with me a little bit to hear the music behind this, okay? Because I'm not going to sing <laughs> It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And then being found in appearance as a man. It's like as if that wasn't enough. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to God even to the point of death on the cross. Paul's realizing, and this is like, as I was thinking about this, my brain was like, the, I was bumping the limits of my imagination because I was trying to like picture this conversation between Jesus and God the Father. But what Paul's trying to capture is that Jesus didn't have to endure what he did for our sake. Like Jesus had all the blocks. He had everything. He had equality with God. He was as much God as God. But somehow, There was this conversation that happened in heaven where Jesus discerned that God the Father desired that in order to properly express God's love for humankind, Jesus was going to need to undergo the ultimate humiliation, to be hung on a cross, to be killed, to express the depth of God's love. And Jesus, he didn't have to do that. It wasn't like a divine command. It says that Jesus willfully assented. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And it's like, Paul, this is hitting Paul here, that the character of God is, is humble. He's saying, if God can do this for your sake, how much more should we be able to do this for one another? How many of you have seen that show, Undercover Boss? You ever heard of that show? You kind to know about it. I've never actually watched a full episode. I'll admit that, but I'm going to try to talk about that show anyways. So, if I get it wrong, just tell me to just tell me to shut up. But this is what came to mind, this is what came to mind for me that show Undercover Boss. So, the gimmick of the of Undercover Boss is this. That people who are wealthy and powerful, the employers, the C-suite folks, they can they spend their whole life totally disconnected from the normal day-to-day reality of the people who work in the plant, right? That's the whole premise of the show, so that you could take a C-sweeter, and you could plop them down in the plant, and people would have no idea who this person is, because they're just absolutely disconnected. Like, they don't share anything in common. They have no life experience to share. That's the whole, like, kind of gimmick of the show, right? And then at the end, there's this kind of touchy-feely moment where they all realize kind of they're, they're all humans or whatever. It's very nicely staged for reality TV, right? And I was like, what a, like what a poor approximation of the ultimate reality behind all the universe, which is like the ultimate boss, the, the ultimate C-suite Jesus Christ. Like he willfully came down and he took up residence with us. And he did that out of his own volition, he came to experience solidarity with us poor and normal folk. And he didn't, even, he didn't come as like the emperor or the king. He didn't come as somebody who people would look at and say, that is the most powerful person who has ever lived. There's something unique about that person. They must be the son of God. That would be natural, right? Do you know that that's what they called the emperor in that time? They literally called the emperor the son of God because they said, this is someone who has amassed more power, more wealth, more prestige than anybody in human history. Surely they must be God's son. And Jesus was like, well, I could upstage him, and I could just totally overshadow everything that the emperor has attained. But instead he came as a a poor teacher from this little podunk village in Israel. Like that's how Jesus came. But there was something about the way that Jesus lived his life in obedience to God the way that Jesus was so full, was so fully connected, had so much confidence in God the Father that people started to notice. They're like, you teach with authority, man. Like nobody teaches like you. You do miracles that we've never seen before. And then when Jesus was hanging on a cross, all totally humiliated, conquered by the Son of God, the Roman Emperor, people were looking at him and saying, no, 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 that's God's Son. That's God's son right there. Because I see someone who is the ultimate expression of love. And something about the humility of Jesus in that moment, it communicated more than anything, any success, any any worldly power, it communicated this is who God is. And so people looked and they said, that's him. That's God's son. The writer of Hebrews, he makes this beautiful little connection. He says that for the joy set before Jesus, that word again, joy, right? For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. It was joy that was motivating Jesus. It was because he was in perfect connection with God. He had total confidence to undergo what he did because of his obedience with God. That's the picture of joy, I thought of um, this this person I had the the privilege of meeting earlier this year, because so I was trying to think about a story that kind of who's someone who I know who who lives with this kind of humility and obedience and does it in a way does it with total joy, and I thought about this guy. His name's Bobby Benavides, and Bobby is actually a pastor in our denomination in the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's a pastor down in West Virginia. He pastors in a region of the country that's been devastated by the coal industry. I mean, the, everybody who lives in that town is totally reliant on the coal industry. And there are people whose bodies have just been devastated by, by generations of living and working in coal mines. And there is this deep mistrust for people who have come in from the outside because there are people who've been constantly sold this false promise hey, give your life to the company. Give your life to Cole and everything will be better. Bobby, he's not from there. He's from California and he spent uh, a few years there doing AmeriCorps after college. And he told me, he's like, I went and I visited and I'm like, this is, <laughs> there's no way I can spend another minute here. So he left after his two years, but God kept putting on his heart, no, 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 that's, that's where I want you. And so Bobby was telling me, he's been living there now for, for years. And he said, People there, he's been living there for years. People still don't trust him because he's an outsider. And they're like, who is this guy who's come in? He's just going to leave again. He's not from here. There's this deep mistrust. But what Bobby was saying to me is, I am honestly willing to spend the rest of my life here. And it might take the rest of my life for people to actually look at me and trust me. And what I love that Bobby does is a way that he connects with the community is he does stand-up comedy. And I just have this awesome picture of Bobby in coal country, West Virginia, telling jokes, trying to get people to trust him because he's committed there for life. he said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to show show folks who feel like they have no value. I'm committed to do whatever it takes to show them that God loves them and they're worth loving. To me, that's an attitude. Of, of finding joy of because of obedience, connection to God and confidence in God, having that you first perspective. That's available to us. That joy is available to each of us. And you don't have to go to West Virginia. You can find that right here. You can find it right here. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and invite our band to come up and just share a few things, a few kind of practical steps that we might be able to take in the coming weeks to tap into the joy that God wants us to live from as we undergo this shift from a me first to a you first perspective. So here's the first one. My challenge to you is to put someone first this week. Find a way to put someone first this week. You might just make a phone call. Maybe there's someone who you even find yourself kind of comparing yourself to a lot. Maybe it's even somebody who's got one of those blocks that you're kind of after. Maybe make a phone call to that person and just affirm them. Say, I see this gift in you. This is what you bring to my life. Do something to put somebody else first. We have the ministry fair going on after church today. Like, what an awesome way to begin to practice a you-first attitude. And I love, Michelle, that you talked about connecting with other people, the joy of serving together, right? Like we, we're creating a space for you to do that after church today. So visit our ministry fair if, if you're not serving and you're like, yeah, I think I could do that. I, I think I could do that. And um, there's, our, our leaders will be happy to talk with you. That's a practical thing that you can do today to begin to move to this you first kind of attitude. One other thing we can do this week is to think through one of those blocks that you can just give up. Something that you know know is one of those motivators for you. Somebody else has it and you want it. Because if you give up one of those blocks, you're going to become more aware of what's right in your hand. You're going to see what Jesus has given you. Because what Jesus wants, like I said, Jesus is not always about changing our circumstances, right? Jesus is not always about dumping, dumping blocks into our lap. But what Jesus, what Jesus has given each of us is a gift, is something to be used for the sake of others. So give up one of those blocks. I think a big one for me that I was thinking about is just my time. And one way I can give up kind of the way that I control my time and always feel like I never have enough time is I can just be more available to other people. That's a way that I can exercise that confidence in God. There's conversations I I have and I'm like, I don't know if I have time for this conversation, right? I really got to go do this. Maybe it's at work or maybe it's with a fellow parent or at school. Maybe just be available with your time. Open yourself to how God might be using you for the sake of somebody else. And if you're here and today you heard the story of Jesus kind of told in a new light, in the way that Paul tells that story of Jesus, being willing to undergo ultimate humiliation for your sake to to fully and adequately express the way that God loves you that Jesus was willing to do that if you heard that and you felt like something moved in your heart and you said, I want to know Jesus, like I want to know that God I would encourage you just to take a moment, you can even close your eyes right now take a moment and just say, Jesus, I want to live the way that you lived. I want to be full of the attitude that you have. I want to be so connected to God that I would be willing to to do anything that you ask me to do, because I believe that's the best way to live my life. I believe that's the way to tap into everything that you have for me. And if you're praying a prayer today about following Jesus. Maybe it's like the first time you've ever acknowledged, I want to be full of the attitude of Jesus in my life. I want to be connected to God. If you're praying that for the first time, I would invite you to go ahead and complete on the back of your connection card. We have a little a box that you can check just to let us know so that we make sure that we follow up with you because we want to know that if you're praying that for the first time or if you're, re, if you're praying that again, if you're, if you're praying a prayer of rededicating, saying, I want my life to be about Jesus. I want it to be about this attitude that I see in Jesus. I'll just invite you, as I close, just to marvel at Jesus this week. I'm adding a third practical application right now on the fly. That's what hit me as I was preparing. I was just thinking about Paul marveling, worshiping Jesus in the middle of writing this letter, just being amazed at the humility of God the way that God loves us. So find a way, if it's in the scripture or in prayer, just to spend time marveling at Jesus and what he did for you in the depths of his love for you. Father, we come before you today. We come before you as as children approaching a good, good father a God who gives us gifts, who has filled us with good things, who has given us everything that we need, who is even willing to, get to fill us with joy in any circumstance. You have given us the blessing of a life lived for the sake of others. That's what it is. It's a blessing to be able to live for others and to be connected to you as we serve and as we shift our perspective from me and what I need to what you need. Help us to do that, God. Fill us with your attitude. Fill us with your love. It's all for your sake. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about us, visit us online at lifechurchrappinghills.org.